Good morning to each of you. It is good to see uh, some visitors with us this morning. We're glad you're here. We hope you enter into this time of worship and reflection on what God has to say to us through His Word, that Word that is forever, that does stand forever. I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. For those of you who are not regularly with us, we are making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes one chapter at a time. Today we come to chapter 7. As we looked at chapter 6 two weeks ago, the title of that sermon was Satisfaction and the Sovereignty of God. The question that I asked then was, what makes you happy? What would it take to make you happy? The question I want to ask you today is, what good is suffering? Now, suffering is not something that we want to talk about. Suffering is not something we want to endure. But suffering is a part of all of life. We all suffer. This is a universal problem. This is a universal condition. We suffer through illness. We suffer through the death of loved ones. We suffer by being betrayed. Those who are close to us betray us many times. We suffer from broken relationships. We suffer economic distress. We suffer from others' criticism and hurtful comments. Sometimes we're taken advantage of. Many times our struggle is internal. We struggle with ourselves. We undergo suffering inside. And as we looked at the end of chapter 6, the last verse, verse 12, we see that we don't know what's good for us. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life, his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So we don't know what's good for us. Only God knows that. And one of the keys that we will see today is that wisdom and trusting God doesn't necessarily guarantee that you won't have hardship, that you won't experience suffering, that you won't experience grief and pain and struggle and toil. But rather, wisdom in trusting God does guarantee that you'll know how to get through it. You'll know how to live in it. You see, fools and wise people. We'll be talking about both fools and wise people here in this chapter. Both of these people experience many of the same kind of circumstances, the same kind of stresses and struggles and suffering. But wise people, people who trust God in it, know how to get through it. And fools never learn, and they never mature, and they never progress, and they never grow. So what good is this suffering? Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools." 
This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bride corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So what good is suffering? I would like to answer this in seven ways from this text. The first answer is, suffering is good for our reputation because it makes us wise. In verses 1 through 4. The second answer is that suffering gives us a long-term perspective Verses 5 through 12. The third, suffering drives us to depend on God. Verses 13 and 14. Fourth, suffering destroys the idea of Christian karma and the associated self-righteousness. In verses 15 through 22. Fifth, suffering shows us that there are worse things than death. Verses 23 through 26. Sixth, suffering proves that we won't ever be able to figure it all out. Verses 27 to 29. 
And the seventh reason we find in chapter 8, verse 1. So we rest in God, who will give us true wisdom and peace. Suffering. Suffering causes us to confront the realities of life in the ways that pleasure never will. Suffering is a part of life. It's a very real part of life. Suffering kind of winds its way around even the joyous things in life. So yesterday we had a wedding. Tomorrow we have a funeral. That's the way life is. It's the way life works. What are we to learn from this? Well, we learn here in this text that a good name is better than precious ointment. And how do we get a good name? How do we arrive at having a good name? Well, think with me. There are two days, two days in our lives where our name will be prominent. What are those two days? The day of our birth, the day of our death. Two days when our name will be prominent, when it will be, be, uh, will be heralded, when it will be announced. We, we send around these birth announcements here in our congregation, and we listen carefully for the name. And then we read the obituary in the newspaper. When our gravestone is placed, there will be our name. And below our name is two dates. The day we're born, the day we die. And between those two dates is a dash. And that dash encompasses all of life. It's it's just like that. It's a dash. And what exists between those two dates, what happens between those two dates, determines whether our name is lovely, like a perfume, not the stinky kind, or whether our name stinks. What happens between those two dates, in that little dash that we call life, will show, will tell what it is, who it is that we are. Oftentimes we don't know what our character really is. We don't know what someone else's character really is until things get hard. And when things get hard, that's when reputations are built. So what kind of name are you going to have? Are you going to embrace suffering and sorrow and pain and struggle and toil and learn the lessons that God has for you to learn? Is your name going to reflect the sovereign goodness and glory of God in all of life? Or are you going to turn to partying and comedy, to laughter, to feasting, to drinking, to try to get rid of the suffering in your life, to try to avoid it, to try to take your mind off of it. You see, there is this thing that we all face, this impending death. But not only do we face that, we face the problems of life while we live. Solomon suggests that we would be better off going to a funeral than going to a party. And the reason he gives is that death is the end of every man. I have some bad news for you this morning. You are going to die. I checked the death rate in Rockingham County, and it stands at 100%. 
you are going to die. Neither jogging, nor liposuction, nor all the brown rice in China will keep you healthy forever. You're going to die. Death is the destiny of every man. And the wise person, the person who trusts God, has come to terms with this. He has come to terms with the brevity of life. He doesn't live as though life will go on forever. He lives as though there's an end. Wise people go to funerals and pay attention. Foolish people just want to laugh all the time. Are we opposed to laughing? No, not at all. Solomon actually told us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there's a time and a season for everything. There's a time to laugh and a time to mourn. But fools don't know that. Fools try to laugh at the wrong time. Sometimes it's just not funny. Sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes there's nothing to laugh about. Sometimes you just need to embrace grief and suffering and sorrow. And he says here in verse 4, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure or house of mirth. When hardships come, when trials come, when suffering comes, when difficulty comes, when strife comes, here's what happens. Fools eat, drink, dance, and laugh their way through their problems. All they're doing is ignoring and avoiding them. Wise people embrace suffering and mourn through it. Fools refuse to go through the hard stuff of life. Wise people accept it, knowing that on the other side is God and an opportunity for real joy in God. When the preacher here talks about the house of feasting, he's talking about this escape mechanism that we call food. So, I'm depressed. So I'm going to eat. That'll fix it. Yeah, and then I'll be fat and depressed. That's so much better. Or I'm depressed, so I will drink. I'll become intoxicated. Well, that's, that'll definitely fix it. Until the next morning. When you wake up from your drunken stupor and you find out that life is worse than it was before. Drinking when you're depressed, eating when you're depressed, partying when you're depressed. What is that? It's foolish. Fools sit around and they waste their time and they numb themselves with entertainment and technology because they think that they can escape reality. They don't want to deal with it. But the one who trusts God in suffering, the one who knows that God is sovereign, that He is loving and good, will embrace the suffering because they know that God is working. And through that suffering will come true joy. 
Now, it might not happen in this life. It might not happen today or tomorrow. But as the Apostle Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to endure suffering as a good servant of Christ is to become wise in this life and truly joyful in heart. Suffering, secondly, gives us a long-term perspective. Not only does it help us to have a good name and to live wisely, but suffering gives us a long-term perspective. Embracing our suffering, trusting in the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of suffering, gives us a different view, a different perspective. And so, as we see here in verse 5, we would rather suffer rebuke and criticism than to enjoy the praise of fools. Well, why is that? Well, because the praise of fools won't last very long. The praise of fools is kind of like this crackling and cackling, burning bushes, like brush. If any of y'all have ever tried to cook over a fire, you know that if you just go grab that, that brushy stuff and throw it underneath the kettle, it won't make your food very warm. You need something more substantial. You need something that will last, something that will have that staying power. And what he's saying is that rebuke is that which has staying power. It sticks with you. It changes your life for the long term. The praise of fools, the flattery, the empty and shallow, it feels good for a little. It makes a big show, but it's gone, and it has no lasting value. Long-term perspective will keep us, in verse 7, will keep us from taking a bribe for short-term gain when we know that in the end, bribery leads to oppression. Bribery leads to a system that drives us crazy. We can't stand it. But so many people take the bribe because they see the short-term benefit. They want the money now. They'll deal with the other stuff later. Suffering demonstrates that it's not what's in the moment that's so important, but rather what will be the end result. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Over and over again, the preacher tells us that we can't know the rest of the story. That's not ours to know. We don't really know what's good for us. God does. And the reason God knows what's good for us is because He does know the rest of the story. He knows it all the way to the end. And so in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our stress, we can trust God that He knows what He's doing and that the end of the story will be better than the beginning. Suffering teaches us patience. Our society has lost its taste for patience. Our society has lost its appetite for the long haul. We want everything now. Not tomorrow. Not this evening. Not two hours from now. We want it now. And if we don't get it now, we throw a fit. We want instant coffee. We want fast food. We want immediate gratification. We want instant entertainment. Our computers and our modems keep getting faster and faster. And we chafe at the idea of having to wait even a, two seconds for the page to load. I know, I, I'm there. My internet has some problems when it rains. Water must get in the phone line somewhere. Things slow down to a crawl. 
well, relatively speaking. Compared to the dial-up that I enjoyed six years ago, it's lightning fast, but it's still a crawl because I want it now. How many times have we allowed ourselves to become impatient when sitting at a red light, when waiting for someone else in line? How many times have we been impatient with our wives or our children, our families? How many times have we been impatient with our church? I can think of plenty of times when I have been impatient. Richard Hendricks once said, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. God is interested in character development. So he will test our patience to develop our perseverance. And he frequently does this because life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. God is building patience in us. He uses suffering to do that. He's building patience in us so that we will go the distance in our marriages, in our family, in our church, in our ministry, in our life. So don't be quick-tempered is what the preacher's saying here. That's a short-term perspective. That's not the response of one who trusts in God's sovereignty. Rather, that's the response of a fool who can't see past the end of his nose. And furthermore, he goes on to say, in verse 10, don't try to relive the past. There's no such thing as the good old days. No such thing. Suffering happened then too. Things were hard. Life was difficult. People died. People got sick. Those weren't the good old days. The problem is we tend not to remember the bad things from our past. We tend to put them out. We block it out. <laughs> Especially if we've been drinking and eating our way to tuning out. We block it out. We we forget about it. And we, we look back with nostalgia and romance. And we say, oh, those were the good old days. But if you went back and asked those people, they wouldn't think they were the good old days. He says here, this, this is the question that comes from a fool, not from a wise person. If we learn the lessons God has for us in suffering, it will help to protect us from the foolishness that accompanies a short-term perspective. He uses the illustration here of a big inheritance. In verse 11, a big inheritance is left. And the foolish person, we know, will spend it and squander it and waste it, and it will all be gone and have no value. And not only will he be poor, but he will also be foolish. A wise person, a person who has wisdom, who has a long-term perspective, will be able to make the best of that money. That money will be useful, will be helpful, will provide protection. And then he will be wise in more ways than one. Another example of this happened in the recent, uh, well, it's not so recent anymore, but in 2008 when there was a downturn in the markets. I was sitting in a business meeting of a secular organization. I served there as one of the board of directors. And people were all alarmed because our investments were losing value quickly. This was the fall of 2008. 
And they made this rash decision to pull all the money out of the market. And only one or two of us stood up and said, no, that's a short-term perspective. This is the worst time to pull out of the market. Yes, it's bad. It's, it's bad and the headlines are bad and it looks bad. But this is the, the worst time to pull out of the market. But they pulled it anyway. If they'd have left it there two years later, they'd have had it all back. You see, that's the long-term perspective. The short-term perspective, all it cares about is what's going on right now. And in our suffering, sometimes we suffer, and it's, it's intense, and it's personal, and it's right now. And we want to throw in all the chips, just bail out. But that's the short-term perspective. The long-term perspective is the perspective that God is in control, that God will make it all right in the end. And so we stick it out. We stay the course. We learn patience. So if you have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of wisdom, you will lose all your money, and it will actually destroy your life. The preacher said earlier, I've seen another evil under the sun. God gives a man wealth, honor, possessions, but does not enable him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger feasts on them. But if you have wisdom, it preserves the life of him who has it. So embracing and enduring suffering gives us a long-term perspective of wisdom. Number three, suffering drives us to depend on God. Here in verses 13 and 14, we find the crux or the center of this whole passage, both literally and figuratively. This is, this is where it all comes together. And the preacher says, consider what God is doing. Consider what God is doing. Not what you're doing, not what's happening to you, not how bad you feel. If you are suffering, use it as a means to consider what is God up to? What is God all about? What is He trying to accomplish? Many people have discovered that it is folly to kick against a sovereign God. To kick against what God is doing. The first and foremost thing that you need to understand here is that God is big and you are small. And when something in life seems crooked, we're usually very quick to try to tell God how to straighten it out. Instead, we should let God straighten us out. That's what He needs to do. That's what He's trying to do through suffering. But we want to straighten it out. God is hard at work. God is working. He's working for our real spiritual good. Not just in one way, but many ways. He works through suffering. He works in all kinds of ways. And therefore, we are called to trust Him, even when the way seems crooked, even when we don't understand. And whenever we have trouble doing that, and I would suggest that we all have trouble doing that, whenever we have trouble trusting God with the crooked things of life, the broken things of life, the messed up parts of life, the first thing we should consider as we consider what God is up to is we should consider Jesus Christ our Savior. Remember that our Good Shepherd 
our Savior Jesus. He once had a crooked way, a crooked lot in life. And that crook came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his Father that if there was any way to make this way straight, to relieve him of this suffering, that he would do it, but there was no other way. And as Jesus considered the work of God, he could see that the only way to make atonement for his people's sins was to die on that crooked cross of Calvary. And so Jesus suffered the cross that God gave him to bear. And he trusted his Father, waiting for his Father to straighten things out when the time came for the resurrection. If God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross, then surely he can be trusted to do something with the crook in your life. Think about it. God himself sending his son to die a cruel death at the hands of his own creation. What's more crooked than that? What's more terrible than that? And yet, God could straighten that all out through the power of the resurrection. This was the testimony of a man that some of us really appreciate. He no longer is with us. His name is James Montgomery Boyce. The last time that he spoke to his congregation was soon after he discovered that he had a fatal and aggressive form of cancer. He only had a few weeks to live. He was a pastor, he was a preacher, he was a teacher at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And this cancer was his crook, his suffering and so, Dr. Boyce asked a question. If God does something in your life, would you change it? To say it the way the preacher in Ecclesiastes would have said it, if God gave you something crooked, would you straighten it out? Would you? Would you change your disability? Would you change your disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance, your abilities, your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for Him to make them straight? Just like Jesus did when He died for you. Dr. Boyce answered his own rhetorical question by testifying to the goodness of God's sovereign will. He said that if we tried to change what God has done, then it wouldn't be as good. We would only make it worse. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes said something similar here in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Do not try to straighten out what God has made crooked. Our Savior would tell us the same thing. When you consider the work of God, remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to make everything right in His own time. Verse 14 says that God has made the bad times, God has made the good times. And who are we to tell Him what is right? 
Fourthly, suffering destroys the idea of Christian karma and the associated self-righteousness. What do I mean by Christian karma? Well, it's the popularly accepted view today in our culture and in our Christian culture especially that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And if you just do good things, then good things will happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And there's a certain element of truth in that. Sometimes. But when good people die young, and when foolish people live a long life, it kind of puts an end to this idea that's so popular in our culture. This idea that only, if you only serve God and give lots of money to me, then God will bless you with health and wealth and happiness and prosperity. You see, that's the, exactly the same theology that Job's friends had. You remember what happened to Job, don't you? Everything happens to Job in a terrible way. He loses his money. He loses his kids. He loses his reputation. He's sitting there with boils all over his body. He's scratching himself with a broken piece of pottery. He is miserable. He has been dealt a terrible blow. He's listening to his leaky faucet of a wife. The only thing that God didn't take from him. And he probably wished that she would have been the first thing taken. <laughs> and Job's friends come. And they don't come to gather around him and to pray for him, to love him, or to bring him chicken noodle soup or hot chocolate. No, they come to accuse him and say, Job, what have you done? Surely you must have done something terrible. I mean, this is a pretty terrible situation you're in. Surely you must have done something awful. And Job says, well, I don't think I've done anything all that bad. I don't think I've done anything that's caused this situation in my life. And they said, oh, no, that's not how God works. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. No, they don't. Look, look at your Bible heroes. Look at Jesus. Look at Stephen. Look at John and Paul. What happened to these guys? They suffered. They were tormented and persecuted and killed. That's what happens to good people. You see, the point is that although, generally speaking, God does reward righteousness with longer life and enjoyment of life, and even in Job's situation, God eventually did restore to him all that was lost and more. But we can't know the end of the story. We're Job. We, we're in the middle of the suffering. We don't see the end when God will restore everything to us. And so we must trust God in the bad times, and the good times. And this will prevent, this will prevent us from rushing to judgment in a self-righteous way when we see people suffering or when we see the foolish person living a long, prosperous life. And that's what he's saying to us here. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think yourself overly righteous. Just because good things are happening to you doesn't mean that you're in the will of God doesn't mean that you're a wise person. doesn't mean that you're a good person. 
Chances are good that God will bring suffering and sorrow into your life to show you that you aren't. But on the flip side, just because something bad is happening to you, don't consider yourself a fool. What matters is whether or not you fear God. And he says here, the person who fears God will come out from both of them. The person who fears God will trust in Him regardless of whether there is good or bad circumstances. And then you will be truly wise, he says in verse 19, with a wisdom that is stronger than ten rulers who are in a city. You see, the wisdom of God that comes through trusting His sovereignty in suffering, this wisdom is more powerful than ten politicians who scheme and connive trying to get their way. This wisdom is something that is settled and sure. Now, now you, if you don't believe that, if you aren't yet convinced, look at what he says next. Take note of the fact in verse 20 that nobody is perfect. Nobody is righteous. There's not a righteous man on all the earth who always does good and never does bad. That includes me and every one of you. This is the message of the Bible from the fall of Adam and Eve all the way through the book of Revelation. This is the reason we need the gospel. This is the reason we must trust God. Because we are not trustworthy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So, if you're going to believe in the Christian version of karma, then there shouldn't be any good that happens to anybody. Because we are all sinful. And the fact that God does bless us, the fact that God does bless the wicked and the unjust with rain, along with the one who fears Him, simply demonstrates to us that God is in control. Not some kind of mystical force of karma. And once again, lest you be tempted to think too highly of yourself. Notice what he says in verses 21 and 22. When you hear someone speaking badly about you, maybe as an employee, remember, you have done the same thing. You are not immune. So don't let your happiness depend on what other people say about you. Don't let your happiness, your satisfaction depend on what God has given or what He has taken away. Rather, trust in God, that He knows what is best, that He can restore everything that is broken, everything that is crooked, but we must trust Him completely. Number five, suffering shows us that there are worse things than death. There are worse things than death. And the preacher here, he sought to figure out how things worked. He schemed. He tried to figure this thing out. And he was frustrated at every turn. He failed to truly discover what was the ultimate purpose in life. And the reason that he failed to discover it, the reason he was frustrated at every turn, was because God is the one who holds the key to all of this. In all his searching, in all his scheming, the preacher comes up against it time and time again. And in one particular way here, the preacher has discovered 
that some things are worse than death. The preacher, the man Solomon, has sought happiness. He's sought pleasure and fulfillment in women. We read about that earlier. And he has been utterly disappointed. It has taken over his life. How else can you explain 700 wives and 300 concubines? Something has taken over. Today we would say this guy has a disorder. And so he lives his life dealing with the bitter results of his choices and his corrupt desires. You see, many times, as we've already talked about, our suffering is brought on by circumstances that are out of our control. Sometimes our suffering is brought on by others. Sometimes our suffering is brought by God. But sometimes our suffering is brought on by our own sinful choices and sinful desires. And that's what Solomon was confronting right here. But the answer in either case is that we must trust God. If we're suffering as the result of our sinful decisions, our sinful desires, then our suffering should point us back to God, who provides a way of escape, who provides restoration, forgiveness. But this escape requires death. This escape requires death. It requires death of self. It required the death of Christ on our behalf. So there is something worse than death. And the suffering for our sins shows it to us. Reminds us of it. Sixthly, suffering proves that we won't ever be able to figure it all out. In this passage, these last couple of verses of chapter 7, Solomon recognizes that he won't ever be able to figure this all out. And if Solomon couldn't figure it all out, guess what? You can't either. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. The Bible tells us that. He kept adding things up. He added one thing to another, he says, to find the scheme of things, to figure out how things worked, to figure out what was the meaning and purpose of life. And he kept adding two plus two, and he kept getting five. It wasn't working. It wasn't adding up. And the reason the math didn't work, the reason the math doesn't work for us either, is because we're messed up. And what Solomon ends up with is the reality that although God created us perfect, we messed it up. And we can't put it back to rights again. Only God can do that. And suffering constantly reminds us of this, constantly brings, us, brings it before us. Here we have one wise man among a thousand women. One wise man among a thousand women. And nobody can figure it out. I don't think the preacher here is knocking women in this passage. In other places, like the Proverbs and the Songs of Solomon, he speaks very highly of women. In Proverbs, he even refers to wisdom as a woman. I think what he's saying here is that even among 1, 000, the 1,000 women that he had around him as wives and concubines, 
there was not one of them that was the essence of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that he was talking about in Proverbs. A true woman, in that sense of wisdom, couldn't be found among all his wives and concubines. Can't you just imagine the scheming and the conniving and the jockeying for position and favor that was happening there in that house with a thousand women? I doubt there was very much wisdom. I'm sure it was a mess. They were seeking out many schemes, but Solomon and all his wives couldn't put things back together again. This was worse than Humpty Dumpty. Only God can do that. Only God can put things to rights again. And so we rest in God, who will give us true wisdom and peace. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And this verse really does belong with chapter 7. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So we must come to the conclusion that Solomon came to. Trust and rest in God. He is the one who is really wise. He is the one who really knows what's going on, who knows the interpretation of this, who understands the why. He knows what's going on from the beginning all the way to the end. And if we trust in Him, then He can make our face shine, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. He alone can change the hard-hearted and the hard-faced In Him we find rest for our souls, peace in our relationships. And we can have this even in the midst of incredible suffering and pain. But we must surrender everything to Him. We must repent from our own selfish ambition and desires. We must trust in the righteous Christ, who is the one and only man that was completely and totally righteous. We won't find that peace any other way. We won't find that joy, that perfection, that righteousness any other way. We won't find it in a thousand women. But we will find it in God's sovereign grace as demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, don't waste your suffering. Don't avoid it. Don't minimize it. Don't try to escape it. Rather embrace it and embrace God. The God who gives us all things, both good and bad. Trust God in the good and the bad. Let the bad things point you to the God who knows all things, to the God who knows what is best for you. Romans 8 says, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let your suffering remind you of the God who Himself suffered in order that you might have all the blessings and all the goodness that belong to Him. Again from Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds like suffering to me. No. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.